Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. A blessed Pentecost season this Wednesday, July the 13th. Boy, we're right in the middle of summer, aren't we? And here in Minnesota, it's actually kind of hot. So we're looking at everything and realizing that each day is a gift. And today, as we come to the scriptures, we know that the light of Jesus shines on us, even in the Old Testament, from Genesis chapter 32. This is a chapter that is really a highlight in the book of Genesis. Now, what I'm finding is when I say that, it really is something we look at all Genesis and there's all these gems everywhere, but this is one that we often remember. Jacob fearing Esau, Jacob wrestling with God. We see all of these great connector points throughout the scriptures, but also we will see Christ. So even though you might've read this before, open up your Bibles, put on your Christ goggles for the gifts are ready ready for you. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information. lhfmissions.org. Helping us to be strengthened by God's Word this morning, we welcome Pastor Hans Feeney of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri. Pastor Feeney, happy Pentecost and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you very much. So, Pastor, this is our first time together. Tell us about yourself, your family, and the work of the saints at Prince of Peace. Sure. So, yeah, I'm the pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran in Crestwood, which is a part of the suburban sprawl of St. Louis. I've been there about two years. My congregation would tell you that we are a small congregation, uh, although that's they're thinking in terms of St. Louis Lutheranism. Uh, we're probably a normal-sized uh, Lutheran <laughs> congregation. We have, uh, I suppose, between uh, 80 and 100 uh, on a weekend, uh, and uh, which is a bit small for LCMS congregations kind of in our immediate area, but not necessarily all that small uh, as a general rule. Uh, but been there about two years, wonderful, uh, fantastic congregation that I'm uh, very blessed to serve. We're part of Christ Community Lutheran School. So we're, uh, I get to be part of a school association, which has been uh, really fantastic and wonderful get to have my kids in Lutheran schools. Um, so my wife and I have four children, uh, four boys between the ages of 15 and three, and uh, life is going just fantastically for us here in St. Louis. And Pastor, just a, a quick moment. You you do a, a series of videos called Lutheran Satire. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Lutheran Satire is a YouTube channel I started a little over 10 years ago, maybe 11 years now, uh, where the goal of it is to teach the Lutheran faith uh, through a series of short, generally animated videos, uh, poking fun of certain specific doctrines to show why various teachings uh, are wrong, why various errors and heresies that have cropped up in church history uh, and even contemporary issues uh, are uh, contrary to the scriptures. So it's a way to try to expand our understanding of God's word uh, through the use of humor. Well, I encourage our listeners to pay attention to that as uh, I've used that a lot in confirmation class. My own children know these uh, videos and it's been a great blessing um, to us. So pastor, as we come together today, we're here to study the word of God in Genesis chapter 32. So can you begin our time and ask the Lord's blessings on our study and prayer? Yes, absolutely. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, as you are the God who keeps his promises, as you are the God who has blessed the world through the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, 
We pray that you may bless us to treasure all that you reveal to us in these words, that you may bless us to see of your mercy, that we may see your steadfastness and your faithfulness in the midst of our sorrows and fears. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have any questions concerning our text in Genesis chapter 32, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. As we look at Genesis chapter 32, everything happens in a context. There's stories before, stories after, and kind of a general way for us to look at chapter 32. So Pastor Feeney, how do you want to start us off today so we start off on the right foot? So to understand what's going on here in 32, which is, this is absolutely uh, one of my favorites, if not my very favorite chapter in all of the scriptures, uh, to understand what's going on here, you have to remember the whole story of Jacob and really even going back to Abraham and Isaac. Um, So when you start with Abraham, uh, God promises Abraham that he is going to be not only the father of many nations, but ultimately that he's going to be the father of the Messiah, that this is ultimately what it means when God promises Abraham that all nations of the earth are going to be blessed through him. So Abraham, who's this old man who's been unable to have children, God provides for him a miracle son in Isaac. So Abraham is going to be the father of the Messiah, and then Isaac is going to be the father of the Messiah. Uh, So then Isaac and his wife have uh, two sons who are twins, Uh, The younger one's name is Jacob. The older is Esau. Now, the typical method of inheritance in the biblical era was uh, that the firstborn son would inherit the lion's share of uh, possessions, land, all of that stuff. But also uh, in the context of Abraham, in addition to the birthright, you have the blessing. And the blessing is essentially God's way of identifying which of your children is which of your sons is going to be the direct line of the Messiah. So the other one will become mm-hmm. the great, great, great granduncles of Christ. Uh, but the one who's marked as uh, the one receiving the blessing, that's going to be the, tr- the straightforward line uh, to Jesus. So the important thing to remember about this relationship between Jacob and Esau is that In the womb, Jacob is trying to be born first. Uh, So Esau comes out first and Jacob is grasping his heel. Uh, There's obviously a miraculous aspect to this because that's not a normal fashion in which twins are born. And what this is meant to indicate, uh, what this indicates is that even from his their time in the womb jacob is trying to pass up esau in order for him to be the firstborn and therefore be the rightful one to be the heir the uh, the heir of his father and thus uh, the direct ancestor of the messiah so he doesn't succeed in doing that esau still manages to be born first but then a bit later on uh, we get two interesting stories with jacob and esau the first of which is jacob uh, esau comes in from the fields he works in the fields he's strong and hairy and uh, jacob is a bit of a mama's boy who's helping out uh, with his mother in the kitchen so esau comes in and is ranting about how famished and hungry he is Uh, so jacob says to him that he'll sell him Uh, he'll give him a bowl of lentil stew for his birthright. And Esau is a man who thinks only in the moment, doesn't think uh, long term. So he says, fine, whatever, I'll make you the trade. And then in uh, Genesis 27, you have a bit more of an elaborate story and a bit more of an elaborate ruse where Isaac is near death and the hour has come for him to give the blessing to his son. And Isaac 
prefers Esau because Esau brings him meat. So it's not necessarily the best reason in the world to favor one son over the other. Um, but Rebecca, who's Isaac's wife, is terrified of what this will mean because she knows her son. And oftentimes this is the way with mothers is that they they know what responsibilities their kids can handle and what they can't handle oftentimes a bit better than fathers do. Uh, Rebecca knows that Esau is not someone who is going to cherish this promise of the Messiah. He's got a hankering for foreign women. And typically when men in the Old Testament have a hankering for foreign women, that means embracing their gods uh, and and diving headfirst into idolatry and condemnation. So Rebecca seems to understand if Isaac gets, the, or if, rather if, if Esau gets the blessing, that's the end of, of the messianic line. You can just uh, kiss it goodbye. So she knows that Jacob is the one who, who needs to actually be the one to carry this responsibility and to receive this blessing. So she comes up with this plan where they cover him in animal fur and put on Esau, put Esau's clothes on him so he smells like Esau and feels like Esau. And Jacob or Isaac can't really see very well. And Isaac kind of worries that something is up because he goes, ah, you sort of sound like Jacob. And uh, but Jacob fools his father and receives the blessing and, and Jacob and Isaac uh, speaks that word of blessing and then what cannot take it back. So then Esau learns of this and he is filled with rage. And the last thing that Jacob hears is that Esau, who has been defrauded now of everything, both of the birthright and the blessing by his uh, sort of trickster younger brother, Esau is so angry that he wants to put Jacob to death. And so Jacob, at his mother's urging, hightails it out of there, and he heads off to uh, live with his uncle Laban, uh, which we'll get to in just a minute in terms of the significance there. But on the way, um, Jacob rests and uh, puts his head down to sleep, uh, oddly on a rock. <laughs> this is to me one of, one of the odd things I've What's one of the small details of the Bible that has never made any sense to me, and I'm definitely going to ask about when I get to heaven, is isn't the ground, isn't just like the dirt more comfortable than a, than than a, than a rock? <laughs> Nevertheless, he has a dream where he sees this great ladder with angels ascending and descending on it, which later on in the scriptures, Jesus will tell us as a reference to him. So Jesus is God come down to earth that man may ascend to God in, in glory and forgiveness and righteousness. And uh, then he has this vision and then God proclaims to him the land on which you, uh, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Uh, and then again, speaks this promise that uh, your, and in your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this is, so this is a promise of, the universal salvation of Christ, of how Christ is going to shed his blood for all mankind, and that all who believe in him from every nation and every tribe uh, will be made worthy of eternal life through faith, will be covered in, in Christ's righteousness. So even though Jacob has gotten the blessing in a less than upright fashion, God still promises him that he's going to honor that word and that all nations of the earth are going to be blessed by the Messiah, by the Son of God, who's going to come from his line. So then Jacob goes off to work for his uncle Laban for a number of years. And if you remember your Bible stories, this is when he ends up marrying uh, 
doing two things that we don't do today. He marries his cousin, three things that we don't do today. One, he (laughs) marries his, uh, he uh, marries his cousins. Two, he marries two women. So he's a bigamist. And three, they're sisters. So really, these are kind of poor decisions uh, all, all, all the way around, but yet out of his mercy, the Lord still works good out of this. So he, so Jacob falls in love with his, with a girl named Rachel, who's his cousin. We'll sidestep that for the moment. Uh, and, uh, and he works for seven years to get her hand in marriage, but then Laban makes him first marry her older sister, Leah, uh, because Leah is the older sister and he needs to farm basically uh, marry her off first is their custom. So then, so Jacob ends up marrying, married to both of them. And uh, there's also a bit of thing where um, they are both, uh, they both deal with periods of infertility. So he has children with them following Abraham's example of, if you remember Abraham conceiving, conceiving Ishmael with uh, Hagar, who's uh, Sarah's slave, basically. Um, so the, the female servants, he has children with them as well. And this is how between those four women, this is how Jacob amasses his, uh, his large family. So he, he ends up with these, uh, with his, uh, number of children and his, has all of his children, uh, his two wives and their two maidservants who are also kind of Jacob's wives at this point. And he leaves Laban and is going back, uh, through the territory. He's about to come across the territory that belongs to Esau. And so the tension here is the last thing he's heard is that Esau wants him dead and Esau's powerful and he's got a lot of dudes with swords and clubs and whatnot. And Jacob has his family and he's terrified that all of them are going to end up getting wiped out uh, by Esau and that God's promise of making him into a mighty nation through which all the nations of the world are going to be blessed Jacob is terrified that this is not true. So he's trying to balance his trust in God's promises with all of this stuff swirling around him, all this anger and fear that's telling him that God may have forgotten those promises. So that's basically the context of, of what you have going on here in chapter 32. As you look at all of that, it is it is quite striking, a common theme that we've seen throughout, that God is carrying his people and it's clearly not a straight path. It's not a smooth path. It's not a, a, a sinless path, but it is a path of faith. And that is something that really you've, you've laid that out. I love the Jesus connections with, with Jacob and the, even sleeping on a stone and so forth. And, and to be able to make those connections, as we say all the time, you know, put on your Christ goggles because Christ is in every page of scripture. So, Pastor, I'm ready to start digging in in chapter 32. Are you? Absolutely. Let's do it. Uh, We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. We hear the word of God, Genesis chapter 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them. Thus you shall say to the Lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. 
and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. As we hear these first eight verses, uh, I, I totally understand where Jacob is coming from and his strategy. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's um, you have to kind of wonder what's going through Esau's mind. So not to, to spoil this, but the Bible has been around for a while. So uh, the, the spoiler, <laughs> spoiler window is passed. But it, it actually ends up being a, a profoundly beautiful and touching moment when Esau and Jacob see each other. And Esau receives him joyously, and uh, Jacob rejoices to be at, at peace with his brother. So you can see that d- despite Esau's flaws as he's as he's grown, I mean, you got to remember this is 20 years, so people do sure. do change. And so when men are, are young, they tend to oftentimes be hot-headed and uh, obsessed with vengeance and, and uh, writing slights and uh, personal justice. And then when you get older and uh, your priorities change and your way of viewing things changes. Um, so, but the funny, the funny thing is, so Esau comes up with this great camp to honor Jacob. But he, he, he doesn't think to send word ahead to say, hey, I'm coming out with 400 men. But don't worry, they're they're coming to praise you, not to kill you. Um, mm-hmm. And perhaps Esau just wants to kind of have the drama of the moment. Um, but ne- nevertheless, yeah, it's just with the limited information that they have, uh, this is this is quite a frightening thing. Jacob does not remotely have the means of defending his family, so his, be- his best option here is we'll split up into two groups, and if if we hear one group getting if one group is heard getting slaughtered, then the other group will uh, will have to uh, seek refuge in the woods or wherever it might be. And it's interesting, I never thought about that aspect of this, is Esau must have known that there would have been fear on Jacob's right. end, that there's, there's definitely, okay, let's look at the scenario here, all right? I, I said this, I said this, why would I not send word, especially if it is a family of Jacob that he possibly would see when he arrived. So it is, I never thought of it in that realm that, yeah, Esau probably could have, he could have done better as well in this process. Uh, anything else in first eight verses, Pastor? Well, the, kind of on that note is that what's what's interesting is that you actually see something somewhat similar with the next generation, with Jacob in Egypt. So his brothers you know, sell him into slavery and he ends up uh, being sold a couple times uh, where he finds himself in Egypt. And then through his ability to interpret dreams, he ends up becoming essentially the most powerful man in the world. He's like the depart. He's like the head of the department of agriculture in Egypt. And he's, he's basically has more, more power than really even Pharaoh has in a sense. And, uh, Jacob sets up or Joseph sets up this plan where he is, um, trying to see if his brothers are repentant and trying to bring his father down to Egypt to save him. And, but he does so in a way that really is quite terrifying for his brothers before he reveals to them who he is. So um, at the very least, you could you could certainly say perhaps there's just a gene within this family that has a bit of a flair for the dramatic and wanting to uh, kind of hold off on that revelation until later. But it also could be that um, 
you know, Esau's Esau's not the one who's been afraid of getting murdered. So the fact, so he's clearly over it. He's made peace with it, and he's mm-hmm. forgiven his brother, and he recognizes that that God chose Jacob. So he very well may not, in any way, shape, or form, think that this is what Jacob is going to be expecting because he's coming about it from a, an entirely different perspective. So let's hear the rest of the story. Um, we'll go verse nine all the way through twenty-one. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and your kindred that I may do good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do good and make your offspring as a sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams. 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Then he handed over to his servants every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are present, sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say to the same to Esau when you find, find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps you will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Pastor, we have about two minutes until our break, but it, the, the, the details continue and, and he begins with prayer. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating uh, movement in the story. What do you have? So, yeah, I mean, there's quite a bit going on here. One of the things, obviously, to note is uh, livestock is money back in these days. I mean, it's still the case in many parts of the world. Uh, and this is this is not remotely an insufficient amount of livestock. This is a lot of wealth that Jacob is using to essentially try to buy the favor of his brother. Uh, and so he, you have this kind of earnest prayer of he's, he doesn't have weapons. He doesn't have military strength. He has livestock. And he's going to try to use that uh, to to purchase his brother's favor. And he's uh, sort of in, through all of this imploring that God would uh, would grant him rescue. But the amazing thing is that when in the next chapter, uh, just from thirty three chapter chapter thirty three verse four, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they mm. wept. So that Esau greeting Jacob actually sounds remarkably similar to the uh, the prodigal father, the, the father of the prodigal son, rushing out to him when he sees his son, you know, appearing on the horizon and rushing out to him and embracing him. So that uh, so that this is this is not the reaction of a guy who had to be bought off. This is a genuine reaction of love and compassion. 
And uh, what it shows here is in many ways is how God answers his prayers, answers our prayers in, in far more abundant fashion than what we've even asked for. And that's one of the aspects of this. We end in chapter 32 with not knowing the rest of the story, <laughs> which is a frustrating part of this. But he's, I mean, and that's one aspect I really see with that he knows the reality. He's obviously feeling the reality of past indiscretions, uh, that he is, he is feeling that he wants this relationship restored. What's fascinating to me, when we get to chapter 33, it, it appears to me and scripturally that it was never about the possessions. It was never about those things is that, you know what? It, God brought that reconciliation to that place. And it just makes me remind that God is the one who does this. Any, any thoughts on that before we take our break? Yeah, it's uh, very true. Uh, and there's, you know, there's been debate between, uh, say, for example, Lutherans and Calvinists on the book of Romans. Uh, when, when Paul uh, references this Old Testament verse of Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. Uh, and the Calvinists will try to use that to point to point to the doctrine of double predestination that God condemns certain individuals um, in order to glorify Himself, chooses from before the foundation of the world to condemn them. Uh, the standard response against that from Lutherans and others has been that uh, that passage is dealing with nations rather than individuals. And one of the passages I would cite to show this is that that beginning of the next chapter where. It's, it's very hard to convince me that Esau is not a believer at this point because he is he speaks entirely like someone who is motivated by a full, firm and full understanding of the grace and forgiveness uh, that's going to be poured out onto the world through the promise of the Messiah that was supposed to belong to Esau but then came to belong to Jacob. I'll talk more about that on the other side of our break. We are studying Genesis chapter 32 with Pastor Hans Feeney, and we'll be right back. On America's college campuses, doors are open to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The number of international students studying at American schools has more than quadrupled over the past decade. For many of these young men and women, it's their first time living in a free society where they can ask questions about Christianity. You can help answer their questions. Go to lhfmissions.org and partner with the Lutheran Heritage Foundation to translate good Lutheran books into languages these students can read and understand. lhfmissions.org And welcome back. We are studying Genesis chapter 32 with Pastor Hans Feeney of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri. And Pastor, I love how we're, we're continually going back that if we read chapter 32 without uh, Christ or into chapter 33 as well, we, 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 um, we, we look at it outside of Christ. When we don't see Christ in the midst of all of this, like you presented it so well, then we get this understanding that, hey, I can reconcile within myself. I can do this work by myself according to my own justification or my own will or my own ability. But when we see it in the light of Christ, we realize that God is at work. And any thoughts on that? Because it really is an important 
a reality, especially for chapter 32 and 33. Yeah, that so much of this is the first part of the chapter is Jacob trying to figure out a way to solve this problem. And Mm. he's coming up with this sort of military strategy, essentially, of, all right, this group is going to hightail it out of here if things go sideways. And then I'm going to give up, you know, a few million dollars worth of livestock, whatever the equivalent would be, uh, to try and and satiate uh, Esau's bloodlust, to try and sort of distract him with something shiny and with wealth. When in reality how the how the chapter ends which we'll see here when we get into these last several verses is god just says no i'm going to i'm going to keep my promise that's what i'm going to do i'm not going to put you in a position where you need to turn the world upside down trying to figure out how to solve this problem that you can't solve the problem is going to be solved by me being exactly who it is that i claimed i would be and thus you remaining the person that i have called you to be and to continue playing the role that I've set apart for you in my plan of salvation. In our lives as Christians, we will fall into the same reality. Like you said, we're not going to necessarily take millions of dollars of livestock and throw it at our sibling because we had a spat 20 years ago. Um, but we we do try to fix our problems ourselves, especially in the church. So, Pastor, what would be your encouragement as we look at Genesis, look at our chapter here, um, is okay, um, let's keep this the main thing, the main thing, and our struggles with that in today's culture. Yeah, that God keeps his promises, that, that, that this is the cent- one of the central themes of, of all of the scriptures, is if God has said he will do it, he will. And it's this is not a mystery for you to figure out some way that you can twist and contort everything in your life to make that happen. I mean, we, you know, we see, see this a few generations earlier, where God comes to Abraham, and he says, hey, uh, you and your, you're going to have a child. You're going to be a father. And Abraham doesn't fully believe in God's promise at the beginning. Neither does Sarah. Uh, so Sarah, in her despair, just says, basically, well, c- clearly God wasn't speaking about me. And, uh, and so they, they come up with this plan of her having a child uh, with, uh, with her maidservant, which will sort of be credited to her, which goes very poorly. This is probably a common thing in the ancient world at this time, right? So that Abraham says, so God gives Abraham this promise, and Abraham looks at the world around him and says, well, that can't work out the way that you, that you said, so I'll figure out some other way to kind of make it work. <laughs> And um, and then you, you see the same thing here, where God has promised Jacob he's going to be the father of many nations. Well, okay, th- is, is your God the kind of God who makes a promise like that, and what he actually means is half of your kids are going to get slaughtered, but amongst the ones that remain, I'll still keep my promise. That's, the, that's not the nature of, of the God that you serve. So, yeah, and all of this, when you look at your at your life and you look at the promises God has given you, the promises of forgiveness and salvation, the promise to give you victory over this world of sin. I think a a big example of this would just be uh, that we don't need to give ourselves over to bitterness in order to fight the wickedness of this world, uh, so that we don't need to turn ourselves into uh, angry political machines and people who, this is, I think, a lot of uh, cable news is really bad for people and social media can be really bad for this because people are constantly looking for someone to tell them who to be angry at and who to hate mm-hmm. because because if you can fight the evil people and very oftentimes the, these are folks that are doing things that are quite evil 
but um, what you become convinced of is the only way God's promise can actually be fulfilled is if I do, if I kind of get my hands filthy with anger and hostility and bitterness. And that's not the nature of the God that you serve. The nature of the God you serve is to keep his promises and not to uh, sort of make you uh, turn yourself upside down and lose who you are in order to build a world where God in the most kind of technical uh, sense is keeping his promise. And it is interesting to see how often it is we will forget God's promises, you know, the life of the church or as, as a father, and I'm a father of, of four children as well, that there's a lot of times I forget God's promise <laughs> that, right. that one, he will hear my prayers, much like when Jacob prays, uh, that he will care for my children um, and that, that I am not the creator of the universe. And so it's just a reminder as we do what God calls me to do as a pastor, uh, more importantly, as a, as a husband and, and as a father, that, that this is in God's hands. I'm called to be faithful and the fruit is up to him. This is Mark 4. He grows. He does not know how. And, and that's a reminder for us in all aspects of our lives. And you know what? I'm I'm very convicted with this because with Jacob, I love how I actually am loving how I'm stopping in chapter 32 because it leaves me with that uncomfortable having to focus on him having all of these strategies. I mean, just I think about my own life, how many strategies I've had. I'm going to do this and then they're going to come to church and then they're going to do this. But then the people don't come (laughs) and they they come for a while and then they leave and you're like, what? I don't like Jesus's parable, but you know, about the, the sower in the field, but it's true. Dang it. You know what, what's going on? So all of this is very convicting because I do this all the time in my own life. So I guess I'll end with Lord have mercy upon me as we hear these words. Yeah. That that is, that's simply human nature in this is to, to look at God's promises and say, okay, yeah, but like, yes, he said, he'll do that. But I, I, I have some role to play in this, and so I'm going to kind of build a world uh, where I'm hedging my bets uh, left and right, which is in a lot of ways what, what Jacob is doing here. So let's look at the rest of our chapter, because this is a very well-known chapter, and I think very easy for us to take a few homiletical, uh, interpretive moves that we have to be careful with. And so just a reminder, as we look at this, we... We let scripture speak, um, not kind of try to insert like, oh, I was a wrestler. I didn't, I didn't wrestle, but if, you know, I wrestled and this is like that. And it's like, well, okay, let's make sure we keep what scripture says, keep it centered on Christ and keep it centered on the truth. So let us read all the rest of our verses. The same night he arose and went, took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place called Peniel, saying, 
for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up again as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Now, Pastor, as we look at this story, like I said, this true story, it's, it's a fascinating reality. Of It literally says it right in the headline, Jacob wrestles with God. So uh, let's get to some basics. Where do you want to start with the basics of this story? Well, okay. So probably the most important thing to understand is that all throughout the Old Testament, there are a number of times in which uh, what we would call the pre-incarnate son of God appears. Uh, typically, and some people would argue, every time you hear, hear the phrase, the angel of the Lord used, the angel is a, doesn't, um, angel is a term that just means messenger. So it, sometimes it refers to the, the order of heavenly beings that we generally referred to as angels. So, you know, cherubim, seraphim, that group. But sometimes it simply means the one who is simply the one who's speaking for God. And there are a number of times uh, when the, so the son of God has always existed along with the father, along with the Holy Spirit as well. And on, a, and on account of that, uh, while the son of God is given the name Jesus, when he becomes incarnate and is born of the Virgin Mary, the son of God exists prior to that and does show up a number of times in the Old Testament. Uh, another very famous example of this is uh, with the men in the fiery furnace in the book of Daniel, uh, when they look in and they say, hey, we put three guys in that furnace, but there's a fourth one in there. Um, and so one thing that Jacob knows uh, and this is, again, a common, uh, a frequent a thing that's frequently mentioned in the Old Testament is you can't see God the Father and walk out of the situation alive, uh, that there has mm. to be some kind of veil there uh, protecting you from his glory on, a, on account of your sinfulness. Uh, but the Son of God, uh, so the second person of the Trinity, uh, this pre-incarnate Son of God, you are able to see, which is what's reflected in this statement that Jacob makes at the end there, uh, that uh, he has seen God face to face, and yet his life has been delivered. And 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 if you if I can just uh, riff on this for a bit, this is uh, let me explain to folks why this is my favorite passage, probably of of the entire scriptures is again, you have to go back to the question of what is the root promise that Jesus has been given, or I'm sorry, that Jacob has been given. And the promise is not even so much, you're going to have a big family and they're going to have a lot of children and they're going to become a mighty nation. The, the chief promise given to Jacob is the savior of the world, the son of God who was promised in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve, the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent and undo the work of the devil and restore creation and grant eternal life to all of mankind, thereby blessing the, all those of every nation who believe in him. He's going to be your son. And so Jacob looks out and he sees all of his children. And he knows that if things go sideways with Esau, that's the end of them. There's no more offspring, no more children, no more grandchildren, no more great-great-grandchildren, which means he is cut off from the line of the Messiah and God's promise has not been kept. 
So how does, in the midst of all of Jacob's anxiety and fear and worry and terror, how does God solve that? Well, the pre-incarnate son of God, the son of God who is, who, when he is clothed in flesh, is going to be made out of Jacob's DNA. Uh, God, mm. God answers his prayer by allowing Jacob to dig his hands into, this isn't a human body at this point, but there's something tangible there. This is a mystery that we don't quite understand. But he allows Jacob to dig his hands into the body that is going to be the son of promise. He lets him wrestle with the very son of God, who is the fulfillment of all of these promises. Um, and so this is the nature of the, this is the God that we serve, is that in the midst of all of your fears and worries, when God has given you all these promises in life, and it seems like everything's going wrong and everything's falling apart and, and the Lord's going to abandon you and he's forgotten all about you, that you don't have a God who just looks at you and says, stop, I'm, I told you I would do it, get over yourself. Uh, but rather you have a God who says, come near me. And you know, beat your hands into my chest, and just pour out all of that frustration upon me, and I will cradle you in my arms. It's like a scene in one of those old movies, you know, um, back in the olden days when ladies would be in dresses in cowboy movies, and something sad would happen, you know, and she'd be mad at the guy, and she'd be pounding on his chest, right, and then she'd she'd eventually give up and kind of fall into his embrace. Uh, and and that's in a sanctified and holy way that this is this is what's happening here, and I, and I love the way that that this ends where, uh, so God says to him, "Let go of me, for the day has is breaking," and Jacob says, "I will not let you go unless you bless me." It's it's marvelous. So it's uh, so God says to him, "Let me go." You've this is I've I've given you the chance to kind of beat me up and to. Uh, and to pour out this sorrow. And Jacob says, I will not let go of you until you once again speak the promise that I'm afraid that you're not going to keep. I need to hear you say it again. And that this is what we're doing when we're running to the word of God. This is what we're doing when we go to church and we're confessing our sins and hearing the word of absolution. This is what we're doing when we're kneeling at the altar and, and receiving and consuming the flesh and blood of Christ is we're saying to God this amidst this world of sorrows, I am not letting go of you until you once again speak your promise and say that I'm forgiven, say that I am your, your beloved one, that I am worthy of eternal life. And so, and I, and I also love too, I just love everything about this, but, but I love at the, <laughs> at the end of it, when Jacob says, uh, tell, what is your name? Tell me your name. Please tell me your name. And God says, why is it that you ask my name? In other words, you know, you know exactly who I am. You know exactly what it is that's just happened here. This is not a figment of your imagination. Uh, so Jacob, whose name, um, his name is changed to Israel. Uh, so Jacob means he grasps the heel or supplanter uh, on account of the method in which he was born, where he comes out trying to, grabbing his brother's heel and trying to pull himself past him to be first. So it, it's kind of a negative name. 
uh, but Israel, uh, which means uh, he's striven with God and, and with men and have prevailed. So that's co- the connection there. Israel is striving. And um, that this is, this is beautiful, that, that the man, that this man who was once a child who was born trying to take something that hadn't been given to him has now become the man who is, who is known by the name of clinging to the thing that has been given to him and refusing to let go of it. I mean, th- this passage here is that this is the entirety of what the Christian life is, is it's being surrounded by hardship and challenges and sorrows and difficulties and just digging your fingers into Christ and saying, I am not letting go of you because you promised me that you would stand with me in the midst of all of this. It's just absolutely amazing and beautiful. It gives a whole new meaning to clinging to Jesus as you hear people say, which can be kind of awkward at times, but this is a great, I mean, you really brought that together for us of the daily Christian life, the baptized child of God, who's clinging to the promises. And literally, like you said, your fingers are clenched into him saying, bless me, you know, give it to me again. Give me the gifts again, because in every day I truly need it. Um, So, I, now I, my mind's running about 20 different directions now. And one, one, one thing that I wanted to highlight and something I've always thought about is God touches his hip socket and it was out of joint. As far as I can tell, this is something someone asked me and I can't remember how I even answered this. I'm going to ask you because you love this chapter is, did he limp the rest of his life? Is that our understanding? Yeah, I think that's the understanding uh, of that passage, that this is a mark that uh, that J- Jacob carries with him for the rest of his life. And, it, and it, again, it really is fantastic. And you can see why Jacob's name is changed here is because this is God basically putting Jacob to the test. Or we're going to put you in, I'm going to put you into pain. Uh, I mean, if you, I don't know if, you, if the listeners have ever had anything out of joint and it's just not, not a good feeling. Mm. Um, and, uh, and Jacob still says, I am not letting go. You can afflict me all you want. You made a promise to me and I'm demanding that you keep it, which really is the greatest act of faith in all of the world is looking at God and saying, I'm not letting go. And I, I think, too, that, that one of the things that this shows, one of the things I lament about uh, 21st century American church culture and like Midwestern church culture especially, is um, that we kind of, you know, I'm a Lutheran, obviously, I've been a Lutheran my entire life. So I come from Germanic and Scandinavian people who tend to be pretty guarded in their emotions. And one of the things that always breaks my heart a bit is when people will disappear from the church for a while because they're having a hard time. And they, they're not coming because they don't want the word of comfort. They're coming because they're afraid that they won't be able to keep it together. And they don't want to kind of make an emotional scene of, you know, weeping in front of people. So they have, so oftentimes when people have loved ones die and they, you know, they have their funeral at the church and they have a hard time coming back to the church because they're afraid that they'll break down into tears or or whatever the situation might be. And, you know, things are going very hard and they know people are going to ask them how they're doing. And then they're afraid that they're going to fall apart when they do. And that mindset is not how the scriptures tell us to to view the word of God and his promises and how we are to view each other. Like when Jacob is wrestling with God, it would, it was, it was not a pretty sight. 
He's sweating and probably screaming his his lungs out because he's in pain. He's probably got snot dripping out of his nose and tears just pouring down from his eyes. And that's that's worship. That you know, worship is not just uh, you know raising your hands and and having sort of a serene look upon your face or gently folding your hands and bowing your head politely. Worship is crying out to God in the midst of your sorrows and begging that he keep his promises. And there shouldn't be any place on the face of the planet where where we should we should feel more comfortable doing that in church than anywhere else. That, that's the place where we should feel most comfortable to be human because it's the place where our humanity is is perfected with Christ's forgiveness and salvation. I have had experiences where people who have gone through extreme trauma, and I've seen two different examples. Um, one example was they basically ran to church. I mean, they just they couldn't imagine a place that they would rather be than in the Lord's house and to let those emotions freely go, even for Minnesotans, uh, to freely come out because that's where I need to be. And then others where you don't see them. I mean, you don't see them right. for a year because of of the trauma that they've gone through and they don't want to let those emotions out. And with that, I do want to ask this question because it is something that I feel like I've heard it interpreted in ways that I'm not always comfortable with, but I'm not sure if it's a, a discomfort because I'm a Minnesotan or, uh, or it's because we want to be careful in how we look at scripture. But the wrestling with God, how does that relate? So Jacob wrestled with God. And what does that mean for us when we talk about our Christian walk? Because you can hear people say, well, I'm just wrestling with the Lord right now. And you're like, yes, but what? how do we make sure we're not going too far off one side or the other when we speak that language? Yeah, um, well, obviously, we're probably not going to wrestle with God in the immediate sense that Jacob does uh, that we right. so that um, we are we are not going to find ourselves in Old Testament times where we are uh, literally physically digging our fingers into the pre-incarnate Son of God. Uh, mm-hmm. But what does unite things? Uh, what unites us to Jacob is wrestling with God in the sense of refusing to let go of His promises and demanding that He speak them again. Uh, so wrestling with God is not so much trying to kind of figure out what God's will is for your life or trying to figure out whether or not you want to do something that's kind of you know, set before you. We, we sometimes have a, people have a weird tendency of talking about uh, like trying to, you know, determine God's will for themselves. And then they always end up doing the thing that's more enjoyable. And then they say that that's what God's will was for them. Like, right. So a guy goes, Oh, I got this new job opportunity. And, uh, you know, it's in a much more desirable location uh, to live. And it's, uh, they're going to pay me three times as much. I really need to figure out, I'm really wrestling with, <laughs> with, with God here. God's really will. need to figure out what the Lord's <laughs> will is for me. And then they go, the Lord's will was for me to live in a house that's three times as big as the one I'm currently living in. Like, oh, it's weird how that always turns out that way. Um, and, uh, you know, like there's, there's, or, you know, a guy has, you know, knows two women he can, you know, marry and he's trying to figure out God's will for him. And it's, it's never the less attractive mean one that God, uh, wills for him to marry. So that's not the sense of wrestling that we're talking about, but the sense that we're talking about is, um, God has promised to 
grant you forgiveness and you are hounded by these temptations that you can't seem to escape and you keep falling back into the same sins over and over again and you feel this demonic voice and presence telling you that you should just give up and despair that everything is lost and then and but you refuse you keep going to church you keep confessing your sins you keep reading your bible you keep praying that's wrestling with god I'm thinking too, and that's and that's very helpful because we exactly right. I'm going to wrestle with the Lord to find out His will in my life, and then, you know, our intentions might not exactly be you know where where we need to be, but we, you know we, we have to be careful on on many other aspects. So for us to realize the context by which we can speak that language is something that leads me to him limping the rest of his life. If we, I mean, we don't know that for sure, I suppose, but it is something that we understand that there was that mark on him the rest of his life to understand uh, that he had encountered God or that he had wrestled with God, that he clung to the promises of the Lord and, and, and he was blessed by the Lord. So basically that limp was a daily reminder every step that the Lord had blessed him, if you will. And I find that to be very important for us as Christians too, that we've been marked and that we should be reminded every day that we are, we cling to him. What are your thoughts on how that relates to us and the daily promise that we have in Christ? Yeah, that um, with with God, things are differently than they're perceived by the world. And um, and affliction is a good example of that. Suffering is a really good example of that. That, that on the one hand, Jacob is physically afflicted, but his affliction is a reminder of the fact that he held on to God who once again spoke his word of promise and gave him no reason to ever doubt anything ever at any point in his life. So every time Jacob took a step, every time he felt a tinge of pain or had to lean on something because he couldn't walk properly, you have a reminder of God's promise. And this is the way that as Christians, we should view afflictions and suffering as well. I oftentimes in our, in the prayer of the church on Sunday mornings, uh, after I, when I, when I'm praying for those in the congregation and, and others, those who are loved by uh, folks in the congregation, those who are sick and ill and, and have diseases and whatnot. One of the things I always pray uh, is that God would take away these afflictions, but wherever it is his will that these thorns in the flesh should remain, we pray that God may bless those who suffer to see through their suffering, to see in their suffering, the sufferings that Jesus endured for them upon the cross, that they can have eternal life. So the great joy of being a Christian is that any affliction that I have, you know, if I, if I have... Uh, back pain, if I if my knees are broken, if I have a limp like Jacob, uh, if I have some disease that doctors can't get out of my flesh, that that this is not a call to sorrow. This is actually a call to hope because in the brokenness of my flesh, God is giving me a reminder of how the flesh of Jesus was broken and how his blood was spilled upon the cross in order to forgive my sins, in order to crush the head of the serpent and undo the work of the fall. And in order to, to give us the promise that the, there is a, the day coming when we will inherit eternal life where no sorrow, suffering, no disease, no hardship will ever be known again, and that our flesh will only be glorified. So we get, so as Christians, when we suffer, we, we don't suffer aimlessly. Uh, but rather we get to see in the midst of our sufferings, the promise of the Messiah that 
that Jacob dug his fingers into and the promise of the Messiah who reached out to us with his nail-pierced hands upon the cross and through his forgiveness brought us into the family of God. Pastor Hans Feeney of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri, giving us God's strong word from Genesis chapter 32. I think after this, it is also my favorite chapter in the scriptures. Pastor Feeney, thank you for bringing us his gifts. My pleasure. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands.